Arahato Arahato Thamma Sambhutasana Murtatsa Bhagavato Arahato Thamma Sambhutasa Bhutang Thammang Thangkang Namasami So today is a very special day, the Katina ceremony, and uh, the generosity of so many people is very uh, moving indeed. Uh, this is my 80th year, so in Thailand, of course, I, they, uh, that means a lot to be an 80-year-old bhikkhu. <laughs> And it will be my 48th panta or vasa. So you look back on one's life, you know, look back at my life and think, it's gone by very quickly. Because uh, the idea of being 80, uh, the perception of 80 years old, even when you're 80 years old, is very old. <laughs> but I don't feel very old. Uh, but uh, this is a reflective style of observing the, 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 the things that arise in the mind in regards to the conventions, like identifying with age 80 or being, having 48 pansas and things like this are you know, conventions that we have and, and then we form our, our kind of views and feelings about them when we're young. And then when we're old, we some surprise sometimes to realize I'm an old man. <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, I, it's the 48th Vasa, and then the, I was a Samanera for a year before that, so that's 49, nearly 50 years <clears throat> involved, you know, being committed to the Sangha. And uh, I look back at the life of very fortunate indeed, you know, to have uh, had this kind of motivation uh, uh, to investigate Buddhism and to have opportunities like in Thailand to to ordain and train with, uh, of course, uh, one of the great masters, uh, Lung Po Cha. And this, uh, you know, is quite in a unexplainable in terms of my social background, cultural background, because it, you know, it surprises me as well as my, my family in America. Uh, I'm from a, actually a, a missionary, Christian missionary uh, tradition. <laughs> and my great-great-grandparents were missionaries sent out from Massachusetts to the Northwest in 1840s to convert Red Indians to Christianity. And so this is... <laughs> so I was born in the Northwest, and I go to, to Thailand and be trained as a Buddhist monk. But this uh, Amravati, the 30 years since we uh, established uh, this, this place, 1984, <clears throat> and then, of course, we're always thinking of George L. Orwell's uh, novel, 1984. There's always something in me waiting for some kind of 
catastrophe or Armageddon. And for instead, we founded this monastery. So uh, in 1984, there's an opera called 1984, uh, made from, you know, from George Orwell's book. But 1984 was when we came to uh, this place called, it was a St. Margaret's uh, school that had been, was closing down. The time uh, Mrs. Thatcher was prime minister and they were closing down many institutions uh, throughout the UK. And this was made available up for sale. And of course, you know, the, it's, uh, we were, first five years we were at Chithurst in, in West Sussex. And then we kind of filled up the, we were, you know, quite uh, renovating the, this derelict house and trying to establish a community there. And we'd reached our, you know, what we'd promised with the council and it's time to expand. And, and the idea was to find some place north of London because this was even before the M25 was completed and it was quite difficult to cross from the, you know, from the north to the south through the, through the all the uh, maze of uh, roads and streets going through London to get to the to West Sussex, and so we came. You know, some friends found uh, this place in Hertfordshire, ideal location, not far from London, uh, but north of London and easy access from the cities in the north. And so this, uh, in, in the past year in Thailand, they've been, uh, Ajahn Yanadama, the abbot, the Jawat, uh, Wat Maharatana one, where I'm living in Thailand, he was very keen on, on uh, getting my uh, biographical information written down, especially in the Thai language, uh, because, uh, you know, getting old, you don't know how much longer I'll be around, and before I drop dead, you can get as much out of me as you can. <laughs> and so there's this, <laughs> this, uh, this beautiful book that they produced, uh, they're called uh, Tamma Prakot, and it, like the arising or the appearance of Dhamma. Uh, and it, uh, the cover has the, the script of Lung Po Cha, that's actually his handwriting. Because when he was in uh, Hampstead in 1977, he kept a diary. Uh, he didn't usually keep a diary, I don't think, you know, it wasn't something he did in Thailand, but he was very keen, very assiduous in, in writing his diary while, we, while he was there in, uh, in Hampstead, Vihara. And so they, they found that and in, in this biography, they have, they have uh, photographs of this, this diary, and then they've, they've also kind of modernized the script so that you can actually read it. But this is the Lumpo Cha's own handwriting, Tama Prakot. And so this uh, pictures, photographs of me as a child, and birth certificate, and if you notice, my birth certificate has my footprints on it. And of course, I'm famous for my feet. And if you notice, they were very small then. 
<laughs> and, uh, and that was, uh, and then the uh, high school diploma and so forth, all this has been put into this, this biography. And the monks at uh, Ratnawan Monastery, some of them have been very diligent in trying to get this, this biography printed and published so it, we could distribute it. And of course, it's in Thai, so we, we don't have that many available copies, but mainly for people who can read Thai script. So it, it's interesting to, to have to reflect and remember your life because uh, the practice, meditation, is, is about letting go, not about uh, holding on to memories. And uh, so Ajahn Yanadamo and several others were quite determined to interview me, tape, ta uh, record everything I said. And so memories do arise, and these are, in terms of Dhamma practice, they are just seen in terms of sankars arising and ceasing. And yet, uh, on a conventional level, uh, this biography is a biography full of these uh, sankaras creating a personality, a person, a, a monk, and so forth. And this is, just to reflect on this, is, this is a collection of memories, photographs, and, uh, and that's what we call the conventional reality. But the point of the whole Buddha teaching is, is not to promote uh, conventional reality as, as anything other than what it is. And so the, the result of uh, living this life, practicing according to the Buddha's teaching is to you know, to let go of these, these attachments, uh, these memories. Doesn't mean you, you, you annihilate them or get rid of them, but you, you contemplate them for what they really are. And, and this is a kind of genius of the Buddha uh, in his, the way he presented his teaching uh, because it's, it makes it all very simple for us. We have very, something very easy to, to do is just reflect on the arising and ceasing of thoughts, memories, feelings, physical experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, the whole lot is seen in terms of sankara, which means a condition, a phenomenon, uh, that which begins and ends. And that includes everything from external, the sun and moon, stars in the sky, the universal system to the most uh, subtle, insignificant emotion that crosses your consciousness at any moment is, is a sankara. And, and this, this kind of practice is really brilliant because uh, we're caught in a realm where the sankaras are, are, are you know, in, we have collected so many. There's, this is an information age where we're flooded with with all kinds of information, with uh, even now you can trace your ancestors on the internet. And, uh, you know, I found out my, my great-grandfather, uh, I never knew this before, uh, my father was not very forthcoming about uh, his ancestry, but I found out that I, my great-grandfather was from the Isle of Wight. 
the same place that Ajahn Kemadamo's grandfather is from. <laughs> I think he was quite surprised. <laughs> and, uh, and that's all recorded in, in records, you know, available on the internet that one can refer to. And then you notice what this does to the mind. It creates a sense of, of having a past, of being related to people in the past, to a time and a place, uh, records and, and uh, historical records are made available, and we create a person. Living in a monastery also is very much, uh, you know, where we create each other as uh, this kind, th that type. Uh, and it's so easy, this is the way we're culturally programmed to create people, personalities, individuals, uh, and believe our own creations as reality. <clears throat> and so the, the idea of Sangha, uh, in terms of taking refuge in the Sangha, is not about personality anymore. It's not about, um, you know, be, uh, kind of emphasizing your specialty or your significance in any way, but in the supatipano, ujupatipano, yaya patipano, samiji patipano, one who practices in the right way, knows the path, develops the path, and this is this is not personal anymore because the path is doesn't isn't a personal condition. We can't claim it as you know my path or anyone's path. Uh, it's to be known uh, through experience, through recognition, through through intuitive attention to the present moment to see and know this path, which is a universal path. It's not a personal one. It's not a divisive path. It's not about emphasizing one's seniority, whether you're a bhikkhu or siladhara or anything like this. It's about the path. And this is, this is uh, very important at this time where the uh, cultural attitudes are uh, emphasizing personality, individuality, to, to a great degree. Our identities are very important to us. Our, our histories, our memories, uh, you know, our, what we've attained, what we've achieved as individuals. And uh, this, uh, of course, we can carry into monastic life also, emphasizing, you know, like you've seen uh, Lungpa Sumato as this, uh, this description, Ajahn Amrode. <laughs> kind of, you know, a kind of, uh, saying all these very praiseworthy things, we can create that into a kind of permanent person. But what I'm pointing at is it is Sankara's arising, ceasing. And that, that if we keep this uh, kind of determination, a kind of uh, relentless determination to, to keep this, to reflect on the way things really are in this way, we can actually break through the illusions, uh, the attachments, the, the blind uh, obstructions that, that, that prevent us from seeing the path. The, the death, they call it the deathless. The, uh, I named this 
particular monastery, Amaravati, it means deathless realm. Deathless is a, try to figure out what that is with your thinking mind, you know, try to imagine a deathless realm, you know, something that has no beginning or end. And, uh, you know, then we find out that that language can only take us so far, uh, our thinking process, our memories, uh, this ability to, to conceive and create conditions. Uh, all our thoughts and memories are about things that arise and cease, about death, in other words, about that which arises must cease, that which is born must die. And language can only deal on that level. You know, you can't imagine what is unimaginable or which has no image. You can imagine anything, any possibility, a fantasy, you know, it can be a conventional form or an abstract form or <clears throat> can, you know, be uh, any color, any shape. But the unborn or uncreated or unformed is beyond imagination. Imagine, ability to imagine or create an image stops there. And as you can actually recognize in through through being practicing this mindfulness, this sati sampajanya, which you begin to notice the limitation of thinking, of conceiving, of conceptualizing, of perceiving. And beyond these perceptions and these limitations of thought and memory and the sankaras is the deathless, nibbana, anatta, reality or dhamma is with us here and now. It's not something remote, abstract, or, or uh, even subtle. It's, it's the, what ultimately real, but which we never can recognize if we're always bound into the limitations of our own thoughts, views, opinions, identities. Now this is a, you know, when you consider that this is uh, an ancient teaching when Buddha you know, 2,500 years ago in India, when he gave his first sermon, uh, this was what he gave, the Four Noble Truths. And he used uh, what is the most common human experience as a noble truth, which is dukkha or suffering. And this, uh, you know, in, here in England, for example, when you go to interfaith meetings and they Usually religions talk about God or love or rather inspiring conceptions, you know, that are very high and very emotionally kind of uh, feeling of happiness or, or hope or faith. But suffering is something that is depressing usually. <laughs> we think. You know, nobody wants to suffer. We all want to be happy. We're always looking for happiness and security. Uh, and yet we're living in a realm that has no ultimate happiness or no ultimate security because of the nature of sankaras. They're forever changing. You know, there's no way we can stabilize them into sustaining uh, sankara for very long because its nature is to begin and end. But beyond these sankharas is this amatta dhamma or dhamma, ultimate reality 
Satcha Dhamma, these words, uh, and these are, these are, you can't define the, these words. You know, it's not something that, you can't define something uh, that is indefinable, but you can know, you can know ultimate reality uh, through what? Not through, through attachment to a concept of it, but through awareness, through paying attention uh, and to observing the nature of sankhara and seeing the limitation that, that our attachment to sankhara is always presenting us with, this sense of anxiety about the future, worry, uh, fear of loss, fear of old age and death, uh, because the, we're always identified with the arising conditions. We want things, to, we want to be happy, inspired, uh, safe and secure. Uh, we want guarantees for happiness and eternal happiness forever and ever. But these are conceptions, perceptions that we, that human beings create. What the Buddha was pointing to is ultimate reality, which is beyond conception, is not a perception, but is known directly through what uh, in Pali they use satisampachanya and panya or wisdom. So this, this particular teaching is of great significance at this time uh, because uh, this is a time where the sankharas are um, kind of at their peak of development, you know, where there's the world's population and the development of technology and the and all the problems that arise with environmental problems, uh, pollution and changes in nature and so forth, what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to manage an increasing world population? Uh, and then the fears of, of um, the planet destroying itself and alien forces. I mean, all the unknowns, possibilities of of misery and destruction are certainly, you know, in our consciousness. Uh, and so, you know, when you reflect on the, the profundity of the Buddhist teaching, it's, it's not about hope and expectation and faith, it's about awakening, wake up and see for yourself. You know, it's not, not something like a philosophical theory that, that inspires the mind, Dukkha is not inspiring, the suffering is not an inspiring concept. But it's, the Buddha put it into the context of a noble truth. So that means it's something we learn from. We, we change our attitude towards suffering, towards looking at it, not as some personal problem or imposed on us from external causes, but uh, we begin to observe it, changing from someone who doesn't want suffering to being someone who recognizes suffering is like this. Or dukkha, this is the Pali word usually translated into English as suffering. So this is uh, significant. Taking, and this is something common to all of us, you know, rich or poor. It's not about, you know, being poor, not having enough to eat. It's the suffering of the wealthy you know, the privilege is, is just as much, you know, anxiety, fear, fear of death, and, 
and worry and, and uh, you know, just the kind of meaningless hopelessness of life itself just as a, as a material development and through just being self-centered and, and concerned about uh, family, political systems, economics, endless problems about the, you know, worrying about the future or guilt or regret about things we've done or said in the past. And so the, the mindfulness practice is about awakening to the present. There's this pachubhanatama, or here and now. This is where experience always happens. It's now. It's not about tomorrow or the past, but here and now. And so training oneself in this awakened awareness, consciousness to the present in which we're no longer caught up in the delusions of the way our mind, our mental states are conditioned. We're looking at them in terms of what they happen to be in the present. And anything you're thinking or feeling or experiencing at this very moment is a sankara. And you know, whether you're feeling happy, sad, confused, uh, worried, or whatever state of mind you happen to be in, uh, or physically, you know, whether you're feeling comfortable or uncomfortable, whatever, you're aware of it. You know it's like this. You know that sitting for a long time and the feeling is like this. There's a knowing of, say, discomfort, or just physical discomfort, or maybe mental anguish, or, or confusion, or despair, or uh, whatever, that is what you can know is that whatever it is, it's a sankara, meaning it, it's an impermanent condition that you can recognize. That which recognizes a sankara is not a sankara. That is what we call sati sampachanya, panya, or intuitive awareness, wisdom, and a deathless, the ultimate dhamma, ultimate reality. So in this way, the Buddha was very effective in, you know, at a time where, you know, in modern, the modern mental attitudes about ancient India. You know, India 2,557 years ago, we don't know what was going on there, except we, you know, we do have records of the Buddha teaching. <coughs> but we can also see it as, uh, you know, so long ago, and people have very, you know, ex have expressed doubts about the importance of Buddhism in the modern age, because modernity is about progress. We're, 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 we believe in the religion of progress and development, and that we have this assumption that we're really progressive, and developing modern science and and we have these perceptions of of progress as as almost a religious attitude an unquestioned faith in the perception of progress and then because of that then we can dismiss maybe old-fashioned religion and appropriate kind of teaching for people in india 2500 years ago or whatever but Actually, when you look at the, what the Buddha actually taught, was not about uh, a certain kind of suffering 
they had in India at that time is about human suffering that we all experience uh, to, uh, today. You know, it's not has not changed. Uh, the experience of dukkha in at the time of the Buddha in India is the same as it is now. And so it, it's a timeless teaching. It's about you know it's pointing to the way things are rather than the way things should be. The ideal of progress is about how things should be. We should progress, become better and better, better and better. Uh, you know, we're full of ideas of uh, everything. Uh, there should be democracy, uh, freedom. Everything should be fair. And this is, progress is taking us to this, this uh, utopian idea of where everybody's going to be equal and there will be no rich or poor, uh, some kind of ideal that we can create in the mind. But that's not the way things are, you know. Progress then is, is one side of it, and then there's regress. You know, if there, if you develop, you have to degenerate, and it's just like one inhalation. You have you can only go so far, and you have to exhale. Uh, you know, you're born and you grow up. You sustain youth up to a point, then you start growing old, and until you get to 80 years old and near, near to the uh, end point of your life. And <laughs> this is just the way it is, you know. This is not uh, depressing when you see it in terms of, uh, in terms of, sat of satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so the liberation that the Buddha taught is, you know, I find uh, in now in my life uh, just a tremendous sense of gratitude is uh, my feeling, you know. I, I feel I've lived this life very well and have had all kinds of wonderful opportunities made available to me uh, to develop this path. Uh, it's, uh, you know, more than I ever expected. Um, in Thailand, I didn't uh, know what to expect when I went to Thailand. I knew nothing about the country except I'd read Anna and the King of Siam when I was in high school. <laughs> but that's not exactly an accurate description of Thailand. And I did see the movie The King and I, which the Thais don't like at all. <laughs> and, uh, and that's about all I knew of Thailand. And then uh, uh, going to Thailand and uh, um, because my interest mainly was in uh, in Buddhism through the Japanese Zen tradition, and so I, you know, that was my my faith arose, my interest arose through that. But because I was living in Southeast Asia at the time, then Thailand was the most available Buddhist country, and uh, from Borneo to Bangkok. Uh, and I kind of fell in love with Thailand. You know, I thought, this is a really nice country. You know, you cross the border from Malaysia, and then you, you see monks on Bindabat, you see stupas, temples, and, and you realize that, that the, you know, 95% of the people are, you know, consider themselves Theravadan Buddhists. And uh, at that time, in 1966, when I first went to Thailand, uh, Burma was 
was you know was the uh, where most Westerners would go because that having been a British colony, there are a lot of uh, English speaking monks in Burma. But in the 1960s, Burma closed its doors to foreigners, so they couldn't go there. You know, you just they were they didn't want foreigners, Americans, or anyone coming into the country. And, and uh, so Thailand was the logical place to go. But they'd never been a colony of uh, France or Britain or a European country, so uh, the level of English-speaking Thais was very limited, you know, and even in Bangkok in 1966. And so <coughs> I found myself having to learn another language. <laughs> Uh, which was good for me to do, you know, and you're going to, to Northeast Thailand, uh, Ubon, uh, where I lived for 10 years, was, you know, you're living in also where they speak a dialect. They don't speak the same kind of Thai that they do in Bangkok. And so you're, you're kind of living within this social milieu of uh, trying to, you, you're studying Central Thai, you know, the Bangkok style from tapes, and then you're listening to Ubo and Isan dialect. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, Thai and Lao languages are very different from European languages. You know, they're tonal, and uh, you have to pay attention to tones of words, uh, which in English don't make, the tone doesn't make any difference to the meaning. But in Thai, the, the wrong tone it can give, make you say some really not very nice things. <laughs> and so uh, this was a challenge, learning to listen to tones. You had to train yourself, your ear, to listen to, to tones, which, you know, I hadn't, you know, hadn't really developed that ability till I was forced to do so in Thailand. But the point is that it was, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the thing of gratitude was that I did develop a tremendous uh, confidence with Lung Po Cha uh, because uh, to me he was, he was a living example of a wise human being. And I felt really strong uh, affiliation with him uh, because even though we, on the language level, you know, we couldn't communicate. He tuned in. He could because he was intuitive. He was wise. He's a he was a wise person. So he could tune in to to moods and to you know. He knew what you were really thinking or feeling, even though it didn't. You know, he didn't understand English. But that's not the point, is it? When you're angry, upset, it doesn't. It's the same whether you're angry in Thai or in English. Oh. <laughs> bored or greedy or impatient or confused. And he was very skillful in helping me to observe these emotional states uh, because, you know, it was very confusing for me having to live in, in a very constricted way, a very strict Vinaya monastery coming from California, you know, Berkeley, where there were no restraints. It's a, anything goes, and enjoy your life, and do whatever you feel like. And then to this very 
conforming uh, traditional monastery. But something in me knew I had to develop that kind of understanding. I couldn't, uh, you know, I found the, the Berkeley scene, the University of California, is a lot of fun, but it also was very confusing. It, it left me emotionally very confused. And um, because there, there was no, no point to the life after a while if you're just following impulses and desires and have no, no reference points other than just the next thing you do. Where in, uh, in monastic life, in Watpapong in those days, was, uh, there was a point to it. You know, there was some, some meaningful purpose. You were actually learning to understand how your mind worked and understand the, the emotional uh, problems that, that I didn't understand before. You know, I was just caught up into helpless reactions to praise and blame and success and failure, where in, uh, in the monastic form and in the Buddhist teaching is to be the observer rather than the person that's caught in the momentum of emotional habits. So at this time, I feel this uh, enormous gratitude, Gatanyu Gatawaiti in Pali, and uh, genuine uh, encouragement to all of you that this uh, this is really opportunity, what we have here at Amravati. Uh, Tanajan Amro, I have great confidence in, in him and, and uh, because this is uh, quite, to take on the monastery of this size is, uh, you know, not many are willing to do it. <laughs> and uh, I, didn't, I didn't know if he would be willing to do it. Uh, but he, he, he arose to the occasion, and I'm very grateful for that, because uh, he actually is one who, who uh, you know, I trust and have respect for. And, and uh, so I can go back to Thailand with a free mind. I'm not, you know, I don't, in Thailand, I'm not worried about what's happening here. Because the Sangha here in, in England has its own momentum. You know, it's not just, it's not dependent on me as some kind of charismatic teacher uh, that has to hold it together. It's, it's got its own momentum. It's the momentum of Dhamma, of Buddhism, of the Buddha's teaching uh, that is important. And the, the personalities of the various Ajahn's teachers come and go and change. There's Sankara's also. But the, the power of this particular tradition is that it, it manages to, to sustain itself through all kinds of troubles and tribulations. When you think of the history of, from the time of the Buddha to the present age, you know, how many kingdoms and empires and so forth have arisen and fallen and Buddhism has prospered and degenerated and almost been lost and then revived, but somehow the original teaching that we have, the Four Noble Truths, and is, has managed to survive through 2,557 years, which is remarkable. You know, it is a convention, admittedly, like any other convention, but it was built on a, something that, is, that, appear, that 
is important to any age at any time in any culture. It's not about Indian religion or Asian religion or, or, or cultural attitudes of a particular time. It's about the human condition, the, the common suffering that we all experience, and learning how to investigate, how to observe, how to change one's attitude from being just helpless victim of circumstances to being a wise human being using wisdom to understand uh, the nature of this realm and this consciousness that we're experiencing in this lifetime. So Alfred, this as a reflection for this event. Andamayang dhammagata sadhukarang dadamase Sadhu, 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 anumodami.